Hey everybody, this is Chuck. Uh, before we get started today, just want to let everybody know, this is our member drive week. Uh, this is the week where we uh, kind of go NPR on you and say, hey, uh, how would you like to become a member of Strong Towns? We're, we're out doing so many things. And really, when I say we're doing so many things, <laughs> I really mean our members are doing so many things. We, we are seeing now this national and, and growing really international movement of people who are working to build strong towns. And the little bit of support that we can give them is having amazing results. The little bit of support that you can give us, whether it's $5 a year, like some people do, or whether it's, uh, you know, we have a couple of people that give us a couple hundred dollars a month. Wh whatever is affordable to you makes a huge difference to us and, and, and really increases our capacity to support those heroes out there doing amazing things. Take a moment and go to strongtowns.org. Click on membership. Membership is the way we uh, accept donations as a, as a nonprofit organization. Sign up to become a member at, at whatever level is comfortable to you and uh, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> On with the show. I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, urban planner in Kansas City, and today joining me once again is co-host Chuck Marone, author and founder of Strong Towns. Hey Chuck, how's it going? Hey Abby, great, great. I know we, I know we kind of become caricatures when we talk about the weather every time, but my <laughs> gosh, it, last week we had frost here, and my parents lost like part of their garden. Um, we planted our garden this past weekend, and it is ninety degrees here today, just insane. Um, I'm loving it. It's very nice. Starting to sound like you live in Kansas City. That's <laughs> Kansas City weather. <laughs> no, it's uh it's pretty nice here. It's it's hot now, so I think I'm going to go to the pool this weekend. The I spent a summer open. at Fort uh, Leonard Wood, south of St. Louis, and I'm telling you, that was miserably hot. <laughs> Not fun. <laughs> so give me yeah. Minnesota. Yeah, it's um it's very humid here in the summer. We've had a pretty nice spring, but it sounds like spring is starting to slip away, and it's it's pretty hot, and it's been raining a lot, and you know, it, that we go through these periods of long rains and followed by uh, humid heat throughout the summer. So we're we're officially here. I'm going to get you to move up here yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure you get the real estate commission when you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the article that we will be covering today was published in Marketplace and it is called self-driving cars might never be able to drive themselves. So the framing for this discussion, it's really an interview. They cover the fact that the California DMV is currently reviewing whether Tesla is technically telling people that its cars are self-driving when in fact no car is fully self-driving yet. Missy Cummings is the director of Humans and Autonomy Laboratory at Duke University, and in the interview said that there are some problems with so-called deep learning 
that is required to support fully autonomous vehicles. She provides one example that the uh, what is called convolutional neural net, which is what creates deep learning, um, that can be shown a million pictures of a stop sign, for example, and eventually it will be able to recognize it. However, in the real world where things are inconsistent, something could create a visual discrepancy where it would no longer be able to, to recognize that stop sign. If, as an example, if there's leaves growing on the stop sign, it can create some major issues. So this can be enough to trip the algorithms up, which obviously has some dire implications for safety. So according to Missy Cummings, the current approach to synthesizing artificial intelligence into our automobiles is not fixable, even with plenty of time and money. She also says that companies have been very effective at creating the public perception that the self-driving car industry is heading in a positive direction, when instead, for every seemingly operative self-driving car, there's actually a team of humans remotely monitoring and potentially intervening. Obviously, a self-driving car that requires an additional six people remotely monitoring it is not scalable. It's not really self-driving at all at that point, and you may as well just be driving the car yourself. But many buyers of self-driving cars, or really so-called self-driving cars, are unaware of this problem and have been led to believe that their car is more capable than it is. Currently, Tesla offers what's called level two functionality, meaning that their self-driving cars always require a human present and uh, with two hands on the wheels. Level five functionality is what would mean um, that a human could sit in the back of the car and drink their coffee and read a book, um, which Tesla and no company offers at this point. So Chuck, I, I know that I've said this before about autonomous vehicles, but sometimes it just seems like we are we're trying to develop a solution to a non-existent problem, and we're throwing a lot of time and money at the endeavor. What do you make of the whole subject of autonomous vehicles and some of these these realizations that we are coming to with regard to the technology and whether or not it's actually going to be able to work for us? So last last week was my birthday. I'm now 48. And there comes this point in time where you start to recognize that maybe some of the things you believe are more curmudgeonly than they are insightful, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and I've I've long you know wondered is my take on autonomous vehicles more curmudgeonly than it is you know enlightened because I, I will say and, and this is not a universal thing and, and there are exceptions to this but but a lot of the people that I know that are most enthusiastic about autonomous vehicles are young people they tend to be younger than me by decade or or more a lot of them tend to be tech bros or or people who are kind of uh, tech enamored. And there's this reaction to me of like, ah, it'll never work. That comes across a little bit as like, get off my lawn, you know, like, but it, it does get to, I think, you know, this, this observation that you just made, which is, it's a solution searching for a problem. I, I think some people might've heard that and said, oh my gosh, you know, there's a huge problem. Thousands of people die on the road each year. Um, you know, we have traffic congestion. We have all these like horrible problems. I want to refine what you said a little bit or, or put some nuance on it, because I don't think you're suggesting that those things are not problems. 
you're just saying that like there's actually easy solutions to those problems right now if we wanted to do it. The problem is that we are insistent on driving everywhere all the time. And we are insistent on building an environment, uh, cities, an economic model around uh, maximizing the amount that people are able to drive on a daily basis. And that is just a bad like system. It's a bad approach. This autonomous vehicle obsession is in a sense acknowledging or accepting that that approach is not only a good approach, but is like with us, like it's in, it's unchangeable, like that's what we will do. And so because that's what we will do, let's figure out how to do it in a, you know, techie kind of way where we can solve all these other things. And the realization is that we're not going to solve those other things with technology, like we're not going to do it. And I, I think we should talk a little bit about AI at some point here, because I, I disagree with this headline, like self-driving cars might never... I think that they actually could work someday, but under certain conditions. But the, the urgent problems we face, this is not a serious attempt to solve them. Yeah. Again, it, I really do think it is a solution looking for a problem because the problems that they cite are, they they seem so far stretched and disconnected from the technology being the thing that solves those things. There's so many other problems in the world that, you know, I honestly wonder how many people have actually thought, man, if I only had a self-driving car, then blank would no longer be a problem. I just think that that's um, really a fallacy on its face. Um, it seems like we've become very preoccupied with this sort of magical thinking and promises of a technological utopia in the future that will solve all of these sticky problems that are in front of us that are very complicated and difficult to solve in real life. And we look to these leaders of industry, right? And we, we want them to t tell us what we want to hear so that we don't have to be the adults in the room to actually solve these problems. And all we have to do is really be patient and buy their products and our path to technological utopia will somehow solve all of these sticky fiscal and socioeconomic implications that have been derived from building a world for cars. I mean, that's that's really what, that's kind of my curmudgeon-y yeah. take on autonomous vehicles um, is that, and, and not just autonomous vehicles, but a lot of kind of new flashy technologies that we become enamored with and, and excited about and that they are exciting. It's exciting ideas and technologies, but but I, I'm not convinced that they're actually solving some of these problems that we may be able to solve by simply doing other things. Right. Let's to kind of wrap, you know, the marketing brochure up because I, I do feel like what we have created here with autonomous vehicles is like the umbrella for a certain class of hopes and dreams, the hopes and dreams of a certain like class of people. Those hopes and dreams extend everywhere from fighting climate change and, you know, environmental activism to pedestrian safety and human safety to increased commerce and growing the economy and creating more jobs to enhancing like the consumer lifestyle. And, and I feel like the marketing brochure for automated vehicles has been so genius in the sense that it has wrapped up all of these things together in a way that has, I think, sidelined and stifled 
so many more interesting conversations and interesting things that could be going on right now that would actually improve people's lives immediately, that would actually decrease the amount of carbon in the air and would actually increase safety and would actually put more money into people's hands and more jobs and all these things. But but the marketing brochure for this has so tapped into, I think, the modern neurosis of, of who we are and who we want to be. It, it's do you remember those like old commercials coming out of World War II? And I, I, I saw some of these like, you know, Disney-esque kind of versions of this where they'd be like, the city of tomorrow is all bright and shiny. And you get wherever. <laughs> yes. I, I feel like what, you know, we look back at those and we laugh, right? Like how stupid, how, how dumb were people back then? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just like a, you know, instead of some, you know, guy, male voice coming through, it's, you know, wrapped up in Beyonce and uh, whatever. And Elon Musk. And Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's the modern incarnation of that. And you got to imagine that people 50 years from now will look back at this and laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they will. I mean, fundamentally, when I see this, I, I kind of just question who really benefits from this technology. I think that if we accept the premise that there's inherently a problem with humans driving their own vehicles that and that creating autonomous vehicles would solve this problem, there's a question about who who does benefit because the first function that's obvious to me that I think is actually the most feasible use for this is to manage freight traffic on freeways where things are more consistent and, and you can push back on that if you want to. But I, I think that specifically on interstates, that may be the best function for fully self-driving vehicles. But the segment of the population, like you said, that's been most pandered to is is really people who have long commutes and the high suburban incomes. commuter. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the suburban commuter. So, you know, we think of this idea of sitting in the back of a luxury vehicle that drives you to the office while you browse social media or read a book. So an autonomous vehicle is, is really just something that replaces a hired driver for people who normally wouldn't have a hired driver. <laughs> well, and so, let me let me let me even put another point on that because you're talking about who benefits and 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 what the costs are. One of the sailing points is that we want it to have traffic signals because we'll just be able uh -huh. to fly through them at 30 miles an hour or 40 miles or 80 miles an hour, and they'll all be automated. And I'm like, well, okay, if you look at a traffic signal as the way to mediate between automobiles, then, you know, that's a, that's a vision that you have. If you look at a traffic signal as like the only way you can safely get across a street in your neighborhood, this doesn't really improve your life at all. Yeah. And it assumes that all cars are eventually self-driving because they would all have to work together in that case. And, and, you know, let's, well, to give the benefit of the doubt, let's say that these cars eventually are, you know, accessible in terms of what a new car costs. So fifteen, thirty thousand dollars in today's dollars. Do these cars then become obsolete over time as the technology becomes outdated, like an old iPhone does? Because if that's the case, then you can't buy it as a used car. So you have this situation where the people who, you know, buy used cars, I'm one of those people, by the way, they no longer can buy used cars, which I think that the the industry leaders would be quite happy about because I don't know that they want people buying used cars. They want people buying new cars. 
So I think that that exasperates the problem of who has access to cars in the first place. And if we continue to build a world that creates dependence on a car for humans to be able to move around and access places, we basically set the stage for the car industry to further monopolize our own self-created dependence on them. And I'm not sure why that would be something that we celebrate as a society being dependent on an industry. So I wonder who actually benefits from this. You know, like do normal people benefit or are we just kind of amazed and entertained by this new technology that will in reality create further dependence and increase hardship on people who cannot access that technology? Yeah. I want to deal with with two issues because I, I do think that there is the, the the pushback argument to the argument that you and I are making is that humans are terrible drivers and basically machines will be better drivers than humans, even if they're not perfect. I think that there is a really good case to be made for that argument, as you insinuated earlier, on, on highways, on interstates. If you can remove so many of the variables in the system, you can remove stopping vehicles and turning vehicles and, and, and vehicles making like right-hand turns or crosses across traffic, that kind of thing. If you can eliminate the need to stop, so stop signs or trees encroaching on the road or you know someone running out onto the street after a, a ball, if you can eliminate all that, which is essentially what an interstate does, you know, you might have the occasional like deer that runs out in the road here in Minnesota, things like that. But, but for the most part, you can eliminate all those things. Automated vehicle technology basically can do that now. And I think in many ways do it safer than humans can. You know, my wife many years ago uh, was working at the state Capitol, was on her way to actually interview Jesse Ventura. My wife's a reporter when he was the governor and uh, I remember this clearly because she got in a car crash that day. Uh, she was in stop and go traffic and someone rear-ended her, just smashed into her. She was stopped, completely stopped. Uh, automated vehicles would, would take that away, would take that out of the equation. Like that would, that, would, that would not happen because the technology exists right now. It's easily deployable to like eliminate those kind of crashes. The problem comes, and, and, and this is where we get into this discussion of AI and what its uses are and what it's good. Anything that requires basically like a human intuition, the article mentions a tree branch that has grown in front of a stop sign. All of a sudden, the, the mechanical learning part of it where it's like, okay, I can recognize an octagon. I can recognize a red octagon. I can recognize a red octagon, you know, of different heights and different, you know, dispositions and maybe, you know, curved a little bit. Well, now you have to recognize a, an octagon that maybe is faded a little bit, or maybe is, you know, does have a tree that's grown across it, or does have, well, humans are able to do this. It's a magic thing about our neurology that even infants are able to uh, like connect things in ways that that are intuitive. Like we, we grasp it intuitively. I think the true like AI people, the true believers in AI, and, and I'm not gonna dispute them in this, say that at some point, the the capacity of computers to learn computers will develop that intuition okay but until then they are just rote mechanical learners right like they actually have to experience something and see something before they can induce or intuit something related to it so 
you learn one thing, you learn another thing. You, Abby, can take those two things, put them together, and intuit a third thing. For machines to do that is really hard. And we have not gotten to the point where we can do that and not gotten to the point where we can do that like at the scale that you would need to operate a, a vehicle in a really complex environment. The, the answer to this mechanically is to slow vehicles way down. If you have automated vehicles traveling at 10 miles an hour, um, the gap between what you need to compute and intuit and, and what you could actually do becomes so much less and the impact of, of mistakes becomes so much less that it could actually work and work just fine. The problem is if you're going to drive 10 miles an hour, you don't need a stupid automated vehicle to do it. You can just do it today and be like ridiculously safe. And so all the advantages, except having the robot chauffeur instead of the human chauffeur, are things we could realize today immediately without any technology at all. Yeah. Well, and my my concern is that the the traffic engineer is going to come in and say that the urban environment needs to be more standardized so that autonomous vehicles can operate better within them. Based on this article, it it really seems like autonomous vehicles are not viable for urban conditions because we have sometimes confusing intersections and inconsistent roadway widths. The streets are not always well marked. The signage can be inconsistent. Um, and then plus there's people parking on the street. There's people on scooters, on bikes, walking around. This is just something that it's an environment that sounds like an absolute nightmare for someone trying to develop an algorithm that can anticipate the complexity and messiness of a city. And frankly, I wouldn't want an engineer to come in and try to fix this complexity and messiness of the city because I appreciate that the complexity makes a lot of human drivers a lot more cautious. As a human driver, you're wondering if that kid is going to jump out in the street or if the bike is going to pull out in front of you or if the car in front of you is going to stop abruptly to try to parallel park. There's all these kind of minor annoyances for drivers that create complexity that enables cars to actually integrate into this world. And it's an environment that that doesn't allow cars to be this like fundamental driver, no, no pun intended, um, of how we function, right? And so it's it's not really an environment that can coexist well with machine learning that requires that things are very standardized and consistent and lanes are nice and wide so that they don't run into things. That, so that's a little bit of a concern is that if we lead with autonomous vehicles in urban areas, that the traffic engineer is going to say, well, we just need to make sure all of our streets and everything is perfectly standardized for autonomous vehicles instead of seeing that the solution to safety in this, in this context is really not autonomous vehicles. It's just slowing everybody down. You guys in Kansas City have a, a trolley line. I don't know what you call it there, right? What is we it called? We call it the streetcar. The streetcar. Yeah. Yo, uh, that's our music for the podcast is the yeah. streetcar song. Yeah. What am I thinking? Yeah, man. <laughs> um, so you got the streetcar. Are people killed on the streetcar? Like, Do people walk out in front of it and get hit sometimes? Has that occasionally happened? With your street no, no, not really. that I know of. Okay, I've never heard of that. That's fantastic. In, in the light rail line down in Minneapolis, there are occasionally, and I'm not saying it's a frequent occurrence, but it's frequent enough where I've, I've, there have been multiple times where people have been killed by 
the light rail line that runs through Minneapolis. And and generally it is, they've got headphones on, they're walking along, they walk out in front of the train for whatever reason, they they don't see it or they don't anticipate it and, and they're hit. Obviously, terrible, terrible tragedy. But you you think about that situation and what you have is you have a situation where essentially as many variables as possible have been removed from the equation of the moving vehicle. You have this this rail line. It cannot go right or left. It can only go forward or backwards. So you've already eliminated, you know, 359 degrees of movement. You have one direction you can go in. For a lot of the line, it is difficult to, in a sense, walk across the line uh, to cross it. You really only cross in certain places. So a lot of that has been eliminated too to reduce conflict. And 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 yet, even with those situations, we still have places where vehicles are hit, where individuals are hit, where people are killed because of this. What I think you're saying is, to me, the biggest danger of this obsession with, with the automated vehicles and the idea that these somehow are going to solve this wide, vast range of human ailments and human problems from climate change to social justice and equity to the dude's commute to, to human happiness is the idea that in order to accomplish these things, we will need to make the built environment as sterile and accommodating of cars as the most rigorous rail line with complete like separation from everything and every other use. That is an engineer's dream. And I, and I say that not to disparage engineers because not all of them would be on board with it. But for the ones that are like traffic first and streets are for cars and streets are for moving cars and, you know, they have no real other purpose. Every other purpose is a nuisance. The license to go in and remake an urban street to be safe for automated vehicles is exactly what they've always wanted to do. And imagine what this would look like too. The, the sidewalks would have fences along them. So that no human, no, I'm, I'm, you're laughing, but I'm not joking. So no human or nothing could like wander out into the space dedicated to cars. And then when you got to an intersection, it would be fenced off and you would not be able to cross or go out until the sign went up and the fences would open and all the vehicles would stop. And then the humans could, you know, cross in their space and then er, er, it would close again. And now you would have automated vehicles. Nightmare. Well, nightmare Unless you are tech obsessed, automated vehicle obsessed, moving cars obsessed, then it is an absolute dream because now what you've done in the name of safety and progress and, and everything else, environmentalism and you know go through the whole marketing brochure, what you've done is you've improved things. You've created a safe environment for people. You've created, you've been able to do away with all the human messiness and now you just have something that is machine perfect. And yeah. It's my nightmare, but uh, it is the, you know, it is the compromises that the people who are pushing this are ready to make in our cities in order to see it come to fruition. A micromanager's dream is A micromanager's my dream. nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're describing our nightmare. I'm not ascribing like evil principles to people, right? I mean, I, I think you can look at people who supported like, atomic weapons research and you can say you know are they were they were they horrible people uh 
No, I think a lot of them thought they were doing, you know, good things to promote peace and prosperity and a better world. A lot of people looked at that as like barbaric and how could you do that? And why would you work on that? Um, I feel like there's, you know, we don't have to question people's motives in order to see this for, I think, what it is, which is a really bad set of ideas kind of snowballing on themselves. And, and let's just be clear. Elon Musk is like our version of P.T. Barnum. I mean, (laughs) so many people, I don't get the people who look at him and are like genius of genius. He's like this generation's like Edison, you know, he's just, he talks about a lot of different things. Find a place where he talks about something where you are an expert in and where you know something about, and you will walk away from that conversation going, what? Huh? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure that he is a genius. I'm sure that he is very smart. I'm sure that he has some great insights and has done some things. But when it comes to this stuff, he is really more salesman than he is engineer or or designer. And I feel like you know he is the the PT Barnum of our time, really. Yeah, yeah, he's quite the salesman, and really the the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So it's not really you know, about people's intent, because I'm sure a lot of people have a great intent when they are interested and pushing for these sorts of things. But, you know, we really need to think about where all this goes in the long run and and what kind of world ultimately we want to live in, because I don't want to live in a world with fences on (laughs) along all the sidewalks and, you know, a perfectly managed traffic environment, I guess. But that's not why I live in the city. There's a whole line of discussion here that I find very interesting about, you know, the revolution in solar panels and clean energy and all this. And I see from my vantage point, the same kind of Ponzi scheme economics going into this stuff. I mean, it's it's one thing to build a solar panel that will be there for 20 years. It's another thing to fix it and maintain it and replace it. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole like economy based around this idea of transitioning to something, you know, to a green economy. I'm all for like the goals, right? Yeah, definitely. But give me walkable neighborhoods. Give me a platform that is like inherently green. Don't take this like bizarre, stretched out, hyper horizontal development pattern and then tell me that driving an autonomous vehicle with rubber tires on an asphalt road because it charges itself with a solar panel that we have to replace every 20 years is somehow green. Like I just don't, I'm not, I don't buy that vision. That vision is really, really uh, discordant from reality for me. Yeah. We, we have to consume our way to environmental sustainability, yeah. Chuck. That's, yeah. That is the path forward. Don't question it. It's funny because I think if you put two paths in front of people, one, you said, is the is the path of consumption to environmental you know environmental uh, you know high quality or whatever you would the the environmental utopia we're going to get to is going to come about through consumption, and the other path is the environmental utopia is going to come about by improving quality of life of people. I think almost everyone would choose the latter, and the yeah. former is the only one on offer. Yeah. <laughs> It's the only one in the marketing brochure. You you can choose the latter. And for a large degree, I have chosen the latter and you have chosen the latter, but it's not the environmental marketing brochure. It's it's not what we're being sold. It's not the Green New Deal. It's not, 
it's not what's being put forth for us. And I just categorically reject it. I, I have a real problem. Yeah. With well, to have a marketing brochure, you need to have something to sell, right? So the other option isn't really it doesn't work for the salesmen of the of the world that have something to sell. True. Although, you know, I, we're selling strong towns and 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 that's a vision and it does involve, you know, markets and transactions and and people building wealth and becoming more prosperous. I, I mean, I I mean, obviously, I believe there's a really strong economic argument to be made for the strong towns approach, but what it's not is a top-down corporate centralized high burn you know, high liquidity kind of approach. And and that's what we're kind of stuck in. Yeah, totally. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we get to share anything that we have been reading, watching, listening to, or anything that's interesting that's been on our radar these days. So Chuck, what have you been up to? So last week we talked about me going to the Twins game, and you, uh, you, you were you were a little, yeah. you know, you were a little braggadocious, or, or like, yeah, I don't know what that's the right word, but you you were a little dismissive and and said that your team was going to win, and they they won. Um, my team is imploding, <laughs> and it's really it really hurts. But to contrast that, this was our first week of softball, so I coach a girls softball team, 11, 12, and thirteen year olds. This is my last year coaching, so this is my final hurrah. And last year we did not have a season, tragically, um, but we got the Nighthawks back together and we got a bunch of young new recruits and uh, the girls took the field on Wednesday night and absolutely dominated. They were they were great. Lots of smiles, lots of fun, but most important thing, and this has never happened in an opening game for me, and this is my seventh season coaching, every girl on the team got a hit. Every girl on no my team way. got a hit. Yeah, it has never happened before. They all got a hit. And so I, I think that's indicative of how this season's gonna be. A bunch of a bunch of hitters, which is what I try to try to coach, is get up there. The other team, pitching at that age is really hard. So the girls, you know, sometimes will just sit and try to take walks because it's really hard to throw strikes in that league because you're, you know, they're not real developed and it's a long ways to throw a ball and you gotta fit in a little box and and I tell my girls, like, you're, I don't want you to walk. Like, if you think you can hit the ball, swing and hit. And it makes the game more fun. And also, like, who if, if you're an 11-year-old girl and, like, your contribution is to walk three times, okay, maybe maybe that helps the team, but it doesn't help you feel good about yourself. Like, I want you to go up and swing and hit the ball. My girls, everyone got a hit. Like, I could not be more proud. I, I That's really so cool. could not be more proud that they all went up and hit the ball. Well, hopefully that makes up for the Royals. Come on uh, now, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> it's so painful. The next three games we have are against them, and I just I'm watching I'm watching my team implode, and it just makes me sad. So, yeah. Well, I'll say in advance. I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> <laughs> you come here and watch me drink out of my Minnesota Twins glass every week, and uh, I, I'm I wait for this, and it's June, and my team's already out of it, and I just. Oh, it's going to be a long summer of baseball. Yeah. Hopefully when we talk next week, I'm not eating my words. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Well, really, I've been so busy this week, but I had a really nice Memorial Day weekend last weekend. It was just 
it was great to have the three-day weekend. We actually went up to the Liberty Memorial World War I Museum. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to that. It's it's so cool. And Kansas City had this um, like hot air balloon event that was on the lawn of the World War I Museum. And I never really go to things like this, but I saw the ad and decided that it would be fun to do something normal <laughs> and family friendly. So um, it was called a balloon glow. Uh, so a bunch of hot air balloons, they blow them up, inflate them, and you can go up and look at them and see how they function. It was kind of confusing because they didn't actually float and I thought they were going to float. So when people started leaving, I was like, wait, you're going to miss it. But yeah, they actually, they didn't float, but you could go see them inflated and see the fire and everything, um, which was pretty cool. It it occurred to me at that moment that, you know, kind of like how there's people interested in mountain bikes or, you know, any people who are interested in certain scenes, there's people out there who are into hot air balloons. Yeah. And I wonder what it takes to get into that because it's actually really cool. They don't have really any like function and how our society operates, but these people own hot air balloons and they set them up and people come look at them. So yeah, it was, it was really, really cool. And- Back in the early days of strong towns, when I would like go anywhere just to share the message with someone, if you could give me like a couch to sleep on, I wound up sleeping on a couch of the couple in uh, somewhere in California. I can't remember the exact city, but they were ballooners and they described it and it just seemed magical really from their perspective. Yeah. They they said they get together and there'll be dozens of them and they just, they just float float away. Yeah. Just, (laughs) I don't know. I love that. I, I, I actually, I've never, so I've never been inside of one and just looking at it, I was like, I, I need to get inside a hot air balloon at some point because they're so pretty and they're so interesting. Um, I would have loved to see them fly in the skyline. That would have been really cool to see. Okay, so I think someday we'll have to do a, a UpZone podcast from a hot air balloon. That from a hot awesome. air balloon, yes. That that sounds like a great idea. So before we go, I'm going to tell you my daughter's uh, transportation idea. So my my youngest daughter is just turned 14. She hates Brainerd because she's 14 and also because she, she's, <laughs> she's now traveled like to Paris and to London. And she's like, why do we live in this city again? It's so ugly. And she's, you know, she's, she's a little bit frustrated with life, but she said yesterday on the way home, she's like, we should get rid of these streets and get rid of cars and not have them at all. I've yes, I've ruined my kid. Everyone. Yeah. Listening. You've effectively. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I've, I, she'll be in therapy someday because of me, but she said <laughs> what we should have is zip lines. Like the whole street yeah. can just be zip lines. You go out and you like connect and you just go. She said, but you see zip lines everywhere. And of course, dad, you know, I'm I'm like- Engineer line? dad. Yeah. Engineer dad. I'm like, okay, so what would we do in, in, in January? And she's like, you just wear warm clothes, dad. Like it would all be cool. And then she comes down to me later and she has this like drawing, like she's like presenting it. Like here's, and, and because the city's kind of flat and there's no hills, like what would you do with a flat? You would actually have, uh, she had like some automation thing where it would like propel you down to the next one. She's taking this very seriously. And now I feel like we should be talking about zip lines everywhere. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'm totally with it. Kansas City is actually really hilly. So that would be a lot of fun. I've actually advocated for um, gondolas to connect certain parts of the city because they're, as I understand it, they are cheaper than what a streetcar would be. So there's certain areas where you could get inside a gondola and take it, you know, over a cliff or over the river or something like that. 
when you come to Kansas City, I, I actually can't believe that you've never been to the Liberty Memorial before. And it is like the coolest view of Kansas City. It's the best view of downtown. And you can see out west so far because it's up top of a, a bluff. So you can see far, far west. And I, I've noticed that people go there every single night and watch the sunset. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. People go up there and, and they watch it. And I've done it a couple of times. And, and sometimes I'm biking by and I see people with blankets and their dogs and families and they, people go watch the sunset up top this, this huge bluff. And it's, it's like the most beautiful part of our city. Book tour in September. Maybe we can do a strong towns, uh, like meetup there. That's a really good idea. Yeah. That'd be really fun. Yeah. Right. We'll do that. It's a plan. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for joining me today, Chuck. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.